This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And now it is time yet again for the Jack Riccardi Show. It just keeps coming back, Doctor. I don't know what it is. Um <laughs> I, said, I, I heard you say you're going to keep an eye on that uh, line of rain showers, as long mm-hmm. as it's not snow. Have you seen what's going on up north? I don't know if I've checked that far. What, is oh, it pretty bad? Yeah, no, they're getting a big, they're going to get a big, big winter storm up in the upper Midwest. And uh, you, you can tell me about rain all day long, as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? Just I'm pulling up radar right now. Where, where about exactly? Somewhere in the upper, upper Midwest. I, I saw it on the national news a little while ago. Yeah, that's why we're here and they're there. Exactly. We've had these talks before. Keep it it that way. (laughs) All right. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. Uh, We've got a lot to get to. Very excited. Glad you're here. You can join the show at 210-599-5555. So uh, the Attorney General came out and uh, offered his condolences for the uh, four Americans who were attacked in Mexico. As you know, two of them were killed and the other two have been uh released and are getting medical treatment uh back here in the United States. It turns out that when Donald Trump was president, he ordered or at least explored, I don't know if he ordered or or told them to look into a missile strike on fentanyl labs over the border in Mexico that he told his then Secretary of Defense Mark Esper that we should look into a missile strike on those labs and that we could simply deny knowledge of it. Esper writes about it in his new book, A Sacred Oath, saying he was stunned at the suggestion from Trump. Now, Congressman Jim Comer of Kentucky, who's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, says he thinks it was a mistake not to do it. That Trump should have followed through had the missile strike, uh, and for whatever reason it didn't happen. Again, we don't know if that's because Trump changed his mind or because, as was often the case in Trump's presidency, his own people didn't do what he was telling them to do. Um, I, I have to say, that has made me think a lot today. That That revelation has made me think a lot. Because you look at how we are all around the world, right? Terrorists. Terror targets, down comes the drone, down comes the missile. American presidents, including the current one, no problem hitting terrorists when they're on the other side of the world. But what about when the terrorists are on our side of the world? What about when the terrorists are just over the Texas or Arizona border? Do you think it's the same thing? You know, I I have to say, if you're going to hit terrorists for representing a threat to the United States or her interests. These cartels are terrorists and they are a threat. They are killing Americans on both sides of the border. They are killing American children. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Would the missile strike have been the right way to do it? You know, part of me says yes. 
And then part of me says, what if you bring down the whole house of cards in Mexico? Because that, that is a, that is essentially a failing state right now. And, um, I don't know if you would make things worse in attempting to make them better. I do know that I think Trump was wrong to assume that AMLO, the, the current president of Mexico, was an ally or a partner or what have you. I just don't think he is. I don't think, I don't think, I'm sorry to say this. I don't think anybody who is the product of that political system can also be someone that shares our interests on stuff like this. That's no, that's not casting aspersions on the people of Mexico, but they are in the grip of a political system or a political machine that is not, that we don't, we can't do business with, that we, we don't have anything in common with. So tell me what you think about that. And we're going to talk to Congressman Chip Roy here in a few minutes. That's uh, one of the things we'll ask him about. You know, the more I think about it, the more I think we're seeing a historic moment in terms of, what the Washington politicians are doing right now about their own dirty linen. Because there's two things going on right now that really expose the undies of the two-party elites in Washington, D.C. We've spent a lot of time talking about Tucker Carlson in the January 6th footage. I told you yesterday that Chuck Schumer gave a histrionic, hysterical, shrill, denunciation he called on fox news corporate to stop carlson if those people know anything at all about what they're doing they'll realize that his speech verifies underscores adds value you know i always i've told this story many times when people try to boycott me or get me taken off the air it's always my hope that management will understand that means we're doing this right. That means this show is over the target. And hopefully uh, the corporate people at Fox also know that. So going after him and going after the network for showing stuff that um, they didn't want us to see or know about is is interesting. And, and it's also interesting that Mitch McConnell, not as shrilly as Chuck Schumer, but but just as vehemently, also thinks it's a mistake. That's Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. And ask me again why I'm not a Republican? Well, well, okay. So in running video last night and the night before, this is sort of um, what goes around comes around. Schumer said that... um, Tucker was showing, quote, contempt for the facts, disregard of the risks, knowing full well that they were lying, lying to the public. Isn't that exactly what the January 6th committee did? A committee that was composed of seven Democrats and the two House Republicans who hated Donald Trump the most? Isn't it, in fact, the case that Tucker Carlson is an opinion journalist, that whatever you think of him, what you get from him every night is opinion? But the U.S. House is supposed to be a place of fact-finding and truth-arbiting. And they, they weren't when it comes to the J6 committee. It was hyper-partisan. It was weaponized. There was no cross-examination of the work done by the J6 committee. There was no one like a Trey Gowdy or a Jim Banks or a Jim Jordan 
on that committee. There was no capability to do what in any fact-finding or hearing or trial is the most revealing moment, the cross-examination. So the, the critique of Tucker Carlson, that he may have presented a skewed picture, that he may have cherry-picked, is a critique that basically could be turned back on those making it. You might even say that Tucker Carlson's two nights of video is the price you pay for what you did with the J6 committee. And they're freaking out about it. They're lying about it. They're still lying about five police officers dying. Now let's talk about that for a minute, because it's a very serious thing when law enforcement officers die in the line of duty or as a result of their duty. So just very quickly, I want to walk through this. Brian Sicknick, the officer most often spoken of, the one that has been lied about in terms of the uh, protesters or rioters hitting him in the head with a fire extinguisher, and of course, Carlson's video shows that he was alive for the rest of the day, continued his work, continued to walk around. Uh, Brian Sicknick suffered two strokes the following day. And it may be that his service on January 6th led to the stress levels or exacerbated an existing condition. Um, I, I, I will I will certainly be willing to recognize that Brian Sicknick uh, died you know, as a result of his duty. But he was not murdered by the protesters. It, it is It is perfectly fine to honor his service, to recognize that his service cost him his life and cost his family his life without lying about it. And then where they get the others is that in the following days and weeks, um, there were either, depending upon how you uh, look at it, there were either three or four officers who committed suicide. And I'll explain why I'm, I'm, I'm being a little vague on that number. There were certainly three who committed suicide, whose families said that their service on January 6th changed them, and uh, whose, whose widows and survivors believe that the uh, riot control duty at the Capitol that day contributed uh, to their decision to take their life. We should honor these officers. We should honor these law enforcement professionals. They deserve the, uh, the honors. They deserve the praise. They deserve our gratitude. Um, it is a fact that police officers are often... Uh, pushed over the edge by the things they see, things you and I don't see and and probably will never see. Uh, It is possible to honor that. It is possible to respect that without blurring the line or borrowing their tragic deaths for political purposes and shame on the people that do that. And then there was another officer, a younger officer, who was not involved on January 6th. His name was uh, Kyle DeFreetag. He was not in the Capitol that day. He did serve in the security detail in the, in the days that followed. But he wasn't on duty. He didn't involve or, or engage with the mob on January 6th. And when he took his own life months later, 
the politicians and the media tried to make him one of these five. But even his own family and even his own doctor say that he was struggling with other things, and he had been struggling with them before and since January 6th. They lied about what happened in the Capitol. They even lied about law enforcement officers. There isn't any lie they wouldn't stoop to tell. The, 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 the whole point was not to protect the Capitol or to honor these officers. The whole point was to make sure that Donald Trump couldn't run for president again. And I can understand somebody not wanting that to happen. I cannot justify what they're doing to try to accomplish that. The other thing that's going on that we haven't spoken about as much is Elon Musk and his exposure of the so-called Twitter files. If you don't know, the Federal Trade Commission is going after Musk for the things he's exposed inside Twitter prior to his owning the company. These are the so-called Twitter files, the censorship, the pushing and collaboration with the FBI and other federal government agencies and even the Biden White House. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the FTC is now demanding that Musk turn over the names of journalists he's worked with and uh, other internal communications. So this is essentially people in the administration trying to intimidate Elon Musk from revealing their involvement with the pre-Elon Musk Twitter. They have no basis for demanding his files. They have no basis for demanding these names. He has no obligation to hand any of this over to him. There's no logical reason why the Federal Trade Commission needs all of this. The only thing I can think of is that as with Tucker Carlson, the hope is that the threat, the 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 eight thousand pound gorilla of the federal government, might be enough to stop or slow down what these two men are doing. I personally hope that it doesn't. I think it's worth asking ourselves: what makes something as powerful as the federal government so scared, so afraid of Elon Musk? And Tucker Carlson. Don't get me wrong; these are powerful people in their within their respective fields. They are preeminent, and and rightly so. But why is the federal government afraid of them? Anytime the federal government is afraid of a private citizen, gets my attention. Makes me wonder. Makes me question things. What do you think about that? Joining us now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is Congressman Chip Roy. Congressman, good afternoon to you, and thanks for making time for us. Great to be with you, Jack, as always. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I'll, I'll, I know we only have a few minutes with you, so I'll, I'll get right uh, to this. Obviously, a lot of headlines today about the four Americans kidnapped, two killed by the cartels in Mexico. Uh, the White House press secretary uh, yesterday saying that... Uh, there are record historic lows for fentanyl at the border under Joe Biden's presidency. Um, so they are acting like everything by every metric is getting better. What is your response to that? Well, it's just more the same that we've been seeing out of this administration from its beginning, which is, uh, you know, you, you hate to be so blunt, but you, there's no other way to characterize it than lies. They've been lying about the state of the border lying about the you know border patrol agents whipping Haitian migrants, lying that they have operational control of the border, lying about the depth, breadth, and despair caused uh, from the fentanyl 
uh, uh, trade and distribution, lying about the uh, power of the cartels and what's going on on the border. And we're seeing it now in full display. We've been hearing from all of the people who have intel on the ground with cartels, whether it's the Gulf Cartel, whether it's Sinaloa's, or it's Cartel New Generation. We know for sure they are amassing power, amassing weapons, getting better trained. And now we're seeing the result of that. You got four Americans in a vehicle going down for whatever they were doing, healthcare procedure, whatever it was. And they end up getting two killed, two that are badly injured. Uh, and that's just one example. But there were 72,000 dead Americans from fentanyl poisoning last year. There were 1,000 dead migrants on South Texas and south, the southern border. There were 53 dead migrants in that tractor trailer that you and I both talked about in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. They're totally trying to sweep this under the rug. And then we've got the human toll. It is inherently unchristian to perpetuate wide-open borders while patting oneself on the back for being pro-migrant. And too many Democrats and too many Republicans do Mm -hmm. that on a regular basis, and it's wrong, and it should end. We have the tools to do it. They just refuse to do it. Your your colleague James Comer is saying that uh, the Trump administration uh, had a discussion about using missile strikes on fentanyl factories. Would that have been the right thing to do? He says he thinks they should have done it. Well, look, first of all, uh, do I support the use of military force uh, to go deal with, with cartels? Yes, I do. Do I think the cartels are the equivalent of dangerous terrorist organizations that we should designate them as such? Yes, I do. Do I think that we need to make sure that we've got our laws set, that we're not empowering cartels by allowing our borders to be wide open through encounter and release, like we could do in H.R. 29, which would give the secretary a mandate to say that you must turn away if you don't have the ability to detain for the adjudication of an asylum claim. Yes, those are the things you could do. The question here, though, is that the president's serious. I don't want to send a missile into a random warehouse and then claim victory, right? I want us to have a concerted effort, an organized, coordinated effort that is backed by Congress. If you're going to use military force, you go to Congress. Okay, Mm -hmm. I give the executive branch a lot of latitude if you need to do something Mm -hmm. in immediate harm for the for America. Mm -hmm. But just today, we were having a debate on the floor about the continued use of the use of military force in Syria, 22 years after the 2001 AUMF in response to 9-11. We have a duty in Congress to authorize the use of military force. And let's be very clear. We want to work with Mexico to make sure that we can have a return to Mexico and migrant protection protocol program that will actually work. And if you're firing missiles into Mexico, well, they may or may not want to cooperate with you. So we need an administration that will do it all and actually stand up and do their damn job. Mm-hmm. Well said. I agree with that. Um, real quick, let me ask you about the debt ceiling. The way the media are spinning it, you're, you guys, the Republicans, are just letting the country spiral into default this summer. What is your response to that? There is one person and one person alone that, if he chooses, will cause this country to default, and that is Joe Biden. That's it. It's his duty. His, and, 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 and we can have the debate however he wants to have the debate. But let me be very clear. That's on him. We will be offering the solutions necessary to be able to move the debt ceiling up. But let me tell you what that requires. You're going to shrink the federal bureaucracy, the woke weaponized bureaucratic state that's at war with the American people. You're going to put us on a path of balance, and you're going to allow us to grow America. And you do that by returning the bureaucracy to pre-COVID spending levels, freezing it, 
and allowing our defense to be at last year's levels, and then we can get ourselves to save $3 trillion over 10 years. If you do that, you will do more to create economic growth and to stifle the growth of bureaucracy and to put ourselves on a path to balance, and then we're going to force Democrats to the table to talk about mandatory spending. No more hiding. No more running commercials. You guys sit down at the table because it will be on them when there are actual cuts to Medicare in 10 years because they're too damn spineless to sit down at the table and deal with the mess they've created. I promise you, I ain't voting for a clean debt ceiling increase. You all didn't send me to Washington to vote for a clean debt ceiling increase. And the president isn't going to hold this country hostage uh, so that he can force us to the table to do so. He owns any default. Joe Biden does. This uh, idea of debt prioritization, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, says uh, the federal government is built to pay all its bills, not to prioritize one form of spending over another. But what you're saying, if I understand you, is we have to do that now. The Constitution of the United States, first of all, requires that we actually honor our debt and our obligations. The uh, fact is the president has the tools necessary and he has the, the law behind him to actually do what he's supposed to do. I'm sorry for that buzzing. They're calling like 6,000 votes, apparently. I don't know what the hell's going on. But, um, but the fact is he has the requirement and the authority to do that. Uh, if he chooses to default, that's on him. That's mm-hmm. the truth. Congressman, I know you got to go, so we'll let you do that. But thank you for the time on this very busy day. Congressman Chip Roy joining us. Thanks, Jack. God bless. So this is um, Fox News' Peter Ducey asking Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, about the cartels killing Americans. Cut number two. So cartels kill Americans on this side of the border with drugs. And now they're killing Americans on the other side of the border with guns. Why is President Biden so comfortable with cartels operating so close to the U.S.? Well, let's be very clear. Let me take on the drug part here, because since you brought this up, um, because of the work that this president has done, because of what we've done specifically on fentanyl at the border, it's at historic lows, historic levels, uh, that we have been able to uh, record a number of personnel working to secure the border because of what we've been able to do. Seizing that fentanyl, uh, we've done it in a historic way. That's because of what this president has done. I just talked about 23,000 federal agents that have been able to be, uh, uh, that we've been able to hire and put at the border to secure the border. On top of that, historic Sanctions going after traffickers and other financiers are helping disrupt fentanyl supply chains throughout their flow to the U.S. And we're really expanded access to treatments like uh, that are saving lives, if you think about it, which prevent overdoses expanding as, uh, as our fentanyl test strips. Uh, and through the removal of the X waiver, anyone registered to pres- prescribe controlled medications can now uh, prescribe life-saving medication to treat addiction. So again, she's just reading out of the binder at this point. But you know, uh, it's always a little dicey until she finds the right page. Um, here, here's let me just break it down. When they say no one's ever done more, what they mean is we let it get so bad that now we are shoveling more ish than anyone's ever had to shovel. That's all that means. It got so bad. Okay, we're so completely behind, we're so completely overwhelmed that, yes, we have more federal uh, personnel on the border. Yeah, because you, you had to move every man, woman, and child you could find to these administrative, non-enforcement 
deployments, it doesn't mean you've stationed people shoulder to shoulder up and down the southern border of the United States. Sounds that way, but anyone who's followed this has half a brain knows that's not true. All she's saying basically is we created the biggest crisis there's ever been, and now we are frantically trying to show that we're doing something about it. It is such bull that it is hard to even sit through and hear these things. Having said that, having said that, and I don't think it is an exaggeration. And you know me, I'm not a, I'm not a war on drugs guy. Okay. I'm not a war on drugs guy, but I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the, the, the drug cartels are terrorizing American communities, American citizens, killing Americans directly, indirectly, however you want to say it, however you want to construct it in your mind. Um, and it is, it would be, it would be absolutely commensurate with the way we handle terrorism and people who kill Americans all around the world to, to take these bastards out. And, and I think Chip Roy's point is a good point. It can't just be a wag the dog missile strike. You'd actually have to be committed to following through. You'd have to have a president. This isn't something the governor can do. You'd have to have a president who didn't mind not being the most popular guy at the next G20. And we don't have that right now. When we had that, it looks like his own people uh, vetoed him. This is an important thing to keep in mind about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a, is a uh, swaggering, larger-than-life figure. He, no, nobody can command a stage or a rally like Donald Trump. But when he was president, interestingly, he did not seem to be able to get his own people to carry out his own orders. The Mark Esper story is just one of many like that. I'm not sure what to make of that, but that is worth filing away in your mind for future Donald Trump. Now, we've got the Tucker Carlson thing. We've got the Elon Musk thing. Uh, as I mentioned, um, you're seeing an unprecedented level of fear and panic from people that never have anything to fear, never have anything to be panicked about. When has Chuck Schumer ever been worried? What me worry? He's like Alfred E. Newman. And Mitch McConnell is just as worried. I start to worry when I see Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell worried about the same thing. You should be worried. Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk are not threats to democracy. If you like what they're doing, if you dislike what they're doing, if you think they've been irresponsible, if you think they're heroic, they're part of living in a democracy. They're part of living in a free society. It's messy. And powerful people are supposed to be made uncomfortable by our exercise of liberty. In other words, individual liberty, which is the most important aspect of American life, is supposed to make the McConnells and the Schumers uncomfortable. But they are freaking out about the Twitter files with Musk and the J6 video with Tucker Carlson. Why do you think that is? 210-599-5555. 55. Esteban is on KTSA, the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Esteban. Uh, they're acting like vamp- a vampire when somebody's about to open up a window and expose some sunlight. And the more they scream, the more 
skeptical I get. You know, you you hit it out of the park when they talk when they talk about the police officer that commits suicide. When classmates were committed suicide, we didn't arrest somebody who that classmate had contact with. That may the girl that may have rejected them or the person that bullied them. Those suicides were tragic, but those were not murders. You've covered plenty of murders, some of which of people people I knew. And those are two very different things. And the more shrill the left gets about Tucker Carlson showing the January 6th videos, I think of an old Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny says, Thou doth protest too much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they, first of all, I think they figure that if they throw a little intimidation around, uh, the right people, not, not necessarily Tucker Carlson, but the people above him will buckle and, and maybe they will. The, the story's not over yet. We'll see what happens. But, um, if not that, then I think the other thing that you're seeing here is that the plan was never, the, the plan was never that we would never see the video. Just that we wouldn't know about it until after the 2024 election. And no one's going to dispel this notion for me. The, the entire point of J6 hearings, uh, was to prevent another Donald Trump run for president. By the way, I'm not rooting for another Donald Trump run for president. I'm just observing this. I'm just a guy observing this. Okay. I, 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 I he's not my guy, but if, if that's their obsession, they just needed to keep this stuff in under their control through the end of next year and then and then and then eventually someday it would come out or there'd be a freedom of information act uh, request or or it would leak or there'd be an edward snowden or or something like that but um their plan has been foiled because now people are watching and there'll be more of it and by the way here's the other thing that i find so interesting if I'm CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times or Time Magazine, I shouldn't be scolding Tucker Carlson. I should be demanding the tape. I should be saying, I'll show people more. I'll do a better job. I'll be more broad. I'll be more sweeping. I will get this out there. I'll make him look like a piker. What you're seeing right now are people whose job is, whose job description is journalist acting more like gatekeepers for the powerful. I don't know how it is in journalism school today. I haven't been near a journalism school in a long time. When I went to journalism school and I was a young pup, everyone I was there with and we didn't all come from the same places and we didn't all want to do the same thing. 99% of them wanted to be television reporters. And the other 1% of us wanted to be either newspaper reporters or radio reporters. But whatever our differences, some were good-looking, some were ugly. But whatever our differences, they all thought their job was to discomfort the comfortable. Right? What the hell happened to that? Where did that go? Kevin McCarthy these days. Today's JR poll. Got to tell you. Uh, either I had him wrong or he's um, undergone some kind of transformation. I'm thinking it's the latter because I don't like admitting I'm wrong. Who does, right? Uh, here's Kevin McCarthy basically getting right in the face of a CNN reporter uh, who asked about the decision to release the J6 footage to Fox. Cut number one. 
Because of the footage that you gave Tucker Carlson last night, he went on and said this is a mostly peaceful chaos, as he said. He downplayed Brian Sicknick's death, said it was not related to January 6th, said this was not an insurrection. Do you regret giving him this footage so he could whitewash the events of that day? No. Um, I, I said at the very beginning, transparency. And so what I wanted to produce for everybody is exactly what I said, that people could actually look at it and see what's gone on that day. Well, why for, but, yeah, but Mr. Speaker, look, each person can come up with their own conclusion, but I, what I just want to make sure is I had transparency. You because I know in CNN, I mean, I had here where you guys actually broke where we were. This was a secret location, Fort McLaren. I don't know if you got concerned by that. I don't even know from a point of view of security if we could ever be taken there again. But when you broke that at CNN, that was a real concern to a lot of people. I had a real concern also when I wanted to make sure transparency looked. Um, the officer's death is tragic in the, uh, anytime an officer is passed uh, in this situation. Uh, I want to make sure they're protected. I want to make sure the transparency is goes forward. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker was this in any way part of the deal that you made no. up with the speakership? <laughs> they try to get him on that. Look, I think um, I, I think he's been better than I thought he would be. Uh, time will tell. We're only uh, uh, like a month or two into this, but uh, he's, he's been better than I thought he would be. And I, I, I wonder how many other Republicans have. Uh, you know, kind of had their wake up call or their red pill or whatever it is, because he was never like this before. He was total establishment, total squish. That was why there was so much res- resistance to him becoming the speaker. That's why there was such a, a, a protracted resistance to that. Um, something's going on and whether it's an act, whether it's temporary, whether he's finally seen the light. Uh, what do you think? 210 599 5555. All right. I'm going to say it. And you will appreciate the significance of my saying it, Christian. If Tom Brady unretires again, he's a clown. (laughs) Thank you. Bravo. Bravo. You know, I mean, hopefully this is just some guy on the NFL network trying to increase his microscopic ratings. But apparently there's somebody over there saying that um, uh, the rumor around the combine is that uh, he will come out of retirement and play for the Miami Dolphins because he lives near there and his kids live near there and they've got a question mark at quarterback now. And, and look, I, not to take away from his greatness on the field, but he is rapidly rivaling, uh, Aaron Rodgers for the flakiest dude in sports. Just l- l- enough. You're done. Do you really think the Dolphins have that big of a question mark at quarterback? I, I probably not, but I mean, I, I, from their standpoint, and don't get me wrong, from their standpoint, can you imagine the ticket sales, the jersey sales? I mean, of course they're gonna if if he if he wants to come, of course they'll find a way to to make that happen. But I mean, you you've you've just explained twice, yeah, why you reached this thoughtful, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> careful decision, and you you yeah. love everyone, and you've taken everyone's feelings into consideration. And come on now, see, I can understand Rogers continuing. I mean, just, just, I mean, to start with, Rogers is about six years younger. He's only got the one Super Bowl, so I can understand maybe from the legacy standpoint, Rogers is trying to hang on. Brady, sure. man, and with the family no. stuff going on, the kid, no, no. I I don't get that. I, I that yeah, can't just, be just true. Enough. That just, can't, that be, can't true. be true. No. Can't be true. Can't be true. They said, hopefully. All right.
So I got to play this for you because this is pretty significant. Um, this doesn't happen very often. And I, I, I saw this happen. Um, I, I didn't work out this morning, but I was working out yesterday morning and I was watching first take on ESPN and, um, they were talking about the NBA and they were talking about the MVP, uh, I guess you could say the MVP race, who's going to be the most valuable player in the NBA. The front runner, uh, is Jokic, uh, because he's having a great year for Denver and Denver's having a great year. And, um, apparently it is the viewpoint of some of the analysts on ESPN, like Kendrick Perkins, who I love, who played for my Celtics and is a good guy. But he, he spun the theory that the NBA favors giving the MVP award to white players. And he used as his explanation for that the fact that if you look at the MVP uh, awards since 1990, and that's the year he picked, um, they have frequently given it to white pl- or every time they've given it to a white player, that's been a white player who was not the scoring leader that year. So he had said this, and then they had J.J. Redick on, the former NBA player, who... Ab- and and this this blew me away right there on first take. The only white guy on the screen takes that argument on. Take a listen to this. Cut number three. I want to just say something Stephen, 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 Stephen A. I, I mean Stephen A. I mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to first take because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show, where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I you ju- not, Yes, you did. I yes, did you did. Not, I did. Yes, you did. That I is did exactly not, what you implied, not, Kendrick Perkins. That is I exactly not, what you implied. I, I Secondly, not, hold on, did, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up. We all know what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just now. Hold on. I stated it. It's the facts. It's the facts. It's the facts. Okay. Now, this is significant beyond sports, and I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, it's 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 an interesting sports discussion. And uh, with all due respect, and again, I love Kendrick Perkins, but he's so all wet on this. I mean, it's just it's just completely ridiculous. But this is important because one of the most salient realities of the current day that we live in is that white people, whether they are sports guys, news guys, talk show guys, political, whatever, are so terrified of being called racist that they don't say what they think, and they're afraid to point out what they know. And so when you're having a debate, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes, I know that doesn't work in radio, when you're having a debate that involves race, time after time after time, white people hold back. They pull in their horns. They're careful. They're uh, deferential. Not because they have any racism in them or because they are uh, unsure of themselves. J.J. Redick is totally sure of himself. 
But people hold back because the worst thing you can do is be thought of. The worst thing that can happen to you. Well, all right, not the worst. I mean, the worst thing that could happen to you is you get a phone call saying a loved one has been killed. The second worst thing that can happen to you in 2023 America is you're called a racist. I know. (laughs) I've had it happen many times. If we are going to progress... We have to stop being afraid of that. I'm not defending racism. I'm defending honesty. I'm upholding the idea that your opinion counts. Your opinion matters. Facts matter. And what was significant about J.J. Redick, you may not care who the NBA MVP is. You don't have to. But he, in a a position where he is an invited guest on a show, and he is the only white panelist, he did not hold back. He was polite. He started out by saying, I appreciate being on this show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. Now, we could talk about this from the sports perspective. Charles Barkley had an interesting observation about this. He watched all this, and then he did a radio interview uh, where he said that Kendrick Perkins is suffering from what he calls ESPN disease. And with all due respect to Charles, I actually think we should rename it because it's not just ESPN. But what he was saying was that what Kendrick Perkins did was um, create uh, controversy. He said ESPN disease is when these guys go on TV and I got to say something provocative and there's some fools out there and I'm going to say something just to get clicks or get eyeballs or, or make people go crazy and race is a touchy subject. It's not just ESPN. It's not just sports. Uh, There is something about talk shows, cable news shows, in any any format where there is adversarial discussion or debate, whether it's me and a caller or a panel or whatever, um, there is that that trap of well, I need to say this in the most provocative way, or I need to say something. I, I, I got to find something that will be provocative. I don't think Kendrick Perkins is a bad person. I just think he's bad at what he was doing in that instance. I think he he sort of awkwardly. Uh, and and sort of um, ineptly tried to make the NBA MVP race about race, the competition, I should say, about race. It's not. It's not. Um, and I mean, I, I again, I, this is not. We don't have to talk about Jokic or anybody. I, I just I think it's very important. This moment to me really really jumped up at me and 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 got my attention. Because we have to stop being afraid to say what we think and what we know. And, and, and I mean, remember some years ago when, when Barack Obama was president, the, there was this phrase that went around all the time, we need to have a national conversation about race. And I mocked it. I said, we're always having a national conversation about race. What, 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 what are you talking about? But in fact, we really don't have it because what we have is lectures about race we have people whose job it is to lecture white people about anti-racism or to call for reparations 
or to assign guilt to people that aren't actually guilty of anything. It's fruitless to assign guilt for slavery to anyone alive today. That's a fruitless endeavor. I like what J.J. Reddick did. We need a lot more of it. So when Kendrick Perkins was making his argument that the NBA uh, MVP balloting is racist, he picked 1990 as his cutoff year. You know why? Because the previous two seasons, the MVP was Magic Johnson. And so J.J. Reddick calls him out, says, you cherry-picked the year, um, you cherry-picked the stats, but most of all, there, there's just no foundation for the notion or the idea that the NBA voters are, are a bunch of racists. In fact, it's pretty hard to make the argument that anything about the NBA is somehow white racism. <laughs> that is a very hard argument to make. Why did Kendrick Perkins think he could get away with that? I think because... Most of the time, when racism or race is brought up, most white people, out of the goodness of their heart, out of the sense that they don't want to uh, ruin their lives, out of the sense that they, they could be suddenly labeled, just kind of shut down. And so I think it shocked him that this other panelist got up on his hind legs. Said, "Wait, wait, 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 wait a minute. You can't say that. You you you're you're playing fast and loose here." And again, I'm not attacking Kendrick Perkins, who's a, I think a great guy, uh was a fun player to watch. Um but there's there, there's there's a lot wrong with with what we do and how we talk about and how we don't talk about race. You know, I hear people say all the time, oh, we talk about it too much. It's, it's, you know, I'm just tired of hearing about it. But I, I get that. The, the, the quantity of it is just we're drowning in it. But the quality of it is not very good. You know, there may be a lot of, a lot of talk, but the quality of it is not very good. And it, I, I really think the key element is being afraid that you will be called racist, that you will be called the problem, that if you speak up and you are not, as the saying goes, a person of color, I guess I'm a person of no color or non-color or whatever, I'm colorless. If you're colorless, well, my God, what do you? where do you get off? But see, there's no point having any discussion. There's no point working on this unless everybody's involved. 210-599-5555. And, and, and I've thought this for a long time. I've seen this happen numerous times. I've watched, I've been part of panels when, when we've had panels on this show. I've been part of panels elsewhere. I've watched shows on cable. You can see it happen. The white person or the white people immediately just kind of lean back. Whoa, okay. I shouldn't, I probably don't need to get in on this. I probably don't have anything to add to this. Not, not true. Not true. By the way, if you look at the civil rights movement, which we rightfully lionize as a great chapter in American history, 
black and white people. Couldn't have been any other way. Wouldn't, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have made the progress it made any other way. All right, Chris is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Jack Riccardi Show. Chris, good afternoon. Hey, great show. Just a couple of points. You know, if I, if I look at it statistically, there's been, what, five out of the last 30 or so that have been white. Doesn't that really fall in line with the statistics of how many white players are in the NBA? And then I loved uh, Charles Barkley's take on it. You know, he basically said, uh, you know, it typically goes to the best player on the best team. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the general gist of it. And yeah. he said, I got the MB, I got the M- MVP one year, but there's no way I'm better than Jordan. And so right. it's it it doesn't have to go to the guy with the most points, and I just think it's a bunch of bunk. And like Reddick pointed out, you know, they're just trying to get people riled up, and everything's racism. So it's again a, a nothing. Yeah, nothing I will say I will say when you when you when you when you when they put people on shows like this, um, and you know you're an invited guest, and Chris, thanks for the call. When you, when you bring on an invited guest, and, and we had this problem, we have had this problem on this show many, many times. The invited guest who doesn't do this every day, who is grateful for the opportunity, who's hopeful there will be more invitations, tries to make the biggest splash they can. And I used to tell people off the air, and Don, you can back me up on this. I used to tell them, just, just be yourself. We like you. We invited you because we like who you are. We think you have something to say but i would watch people that were perfectly normal functional people turn into spitfire fire breathing maniacs because in our current you know short attention span communications culture you're trying to get those clicks you're trying to get that virality right i want to go viral i want to be the the guy on jack's show that everybody's talking about for the rest of the week and it and it it makes for inanity or worse it is it is a disease i wouldn't call it espn disease cuz i think it's bigger than that but barkley's right about that i've seen it and um you know there's there's you there's with something like a sports topic there's always many different ways to argue it if you're a sports fan it's very inter- i get fascinated by this stuff cuz i am a sports fan but but you just come on and go. Well, it, it's a, it's a racist award, and they keep. He said they keep moving the goalposts so that black people can't win it. it, it it's just not. No, <laughs> that's that's not only not a good way for you to get attention or ratings or an audience. It's not good to. That's not a good thing to say. That is a harmful thing to say. Think about the effect that has on young players, on kids playing the sport, on fans. On people buying tickets. I mean, it's not you're you're not doing the stuff you claim to care about any good. And we ought to care about how our words fall onto the ears and the hearts of the people who hear them. That ought to be important. But see, the 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 the, the current model, and I'm sorry to say this because this I'm, I'm talking about my business now. The current model is so geared to clicks and views, and follows, and likes, that people have convinced themselves, well, I can't just say what I think, 
or I can't make a nuanced argument, or I can't explain that this is more complicated than it sounds. I've just got to say something that will immediately go viral. And he did, and it and it did. I mean, it it it, it did what he wanted it to do. Everybody's talking about it. I mean, hours and hours of programming on that network. This is what everybody's talking about. So yesterday we told you a story about a uh, case out of Ocala, Florida. The Supreme Court has um, rejected the city's request to dismiss a lawsuit brought by atheists who claim that in 2014, when there had been a mass shooting, and that was followed up by a prayer vigil, they were offended and felt excluded by that. Uh, to talk about that is uh, our constitutional law professor and expert, Bill Pyatt from St. Mary's University School of Law, joining us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Professor, good afternoon. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. So we've, uh, you know, we all know the government can't establish or prohibit the exercise of religion, um, but I, I, I don't really get where feeling excluded or offended would give you standing to bring a lawsuit. Okay, and I think you're absolutely right, and I think that ultimately the Supreme Court is going to dismiss this if the lower courts don't do it for them. And here's why. So, as you know, in 2014, there was a prayer vigil in Ocala, Florida, sponsored by a uh, police chief. Some atheists who happened to hear it became offended that they heard Christian prayer, so they filed a lawsuit. The court, the district court that heard the case, ruled in favor of the atheists, granted them each $1 because they were offended observers, but gave attorney's fees. Under the federal statutes, you get attorney's fees if you win even $1. So the city appealed, and in July of 2022, the appellate court for the 11th Circuit upheld the case, but said, okay, you have standing to sue, but we're going to send it back to the district court. Because in the meantime, the Supreme Court in 2018 had ruled in the case, Kennedy versus Bremerton, that a football coach, a high school football coach who Mm -hmm. was praying out on the field, had the right to do that under the free exercise clause. Mm -hmm. All right, let me just talk about this notion of conservation of judicial resources. So when the city of Ocala goes to the Supreme Court and says, okay, we'll throw this case out, the Supreme Court says, we're sending it, you know, it's already in the district court. And we're asking them to consider it in light of the Kennedy versus Bremerton case. Hint, hint, toss it because you don't get to sue because you're an offended observer Mm. of Christian Mm -hmm. prayer. So this doctrine of conservation of judicial resources is another way of saying, let's don't waste the court's time. So the Supreme Mm. Court of the United States has already announced the principle, and they are relying on the 11th Circuit and the federal district courts to follow it. But, you know, there's no absolute certainty in the law, but I could almost guarantee that this offended observer standard is going to go down the drain, that the Mm -hmm. free exercise clause is going to prevail, and the atheists that are offended, it's just tough luck. I think courts pointed out any government action is bound to offend somebody, and just because you're offended doesn't mean you get to go to court and sue. So it's frustrating when you just hear the headlines because people that write the headlines sometimes don't understand or they want to give a, a misimpression that the Supreme Court is saying, if you're offended as an observer, you get to sue. No, it's just right, the right, right. Yeah. Like you're, yeah, like they're opening the, they're, they're holding open the door. Uh, let me ask you a question about this that may be impossible for you to, to have. I, I don't mean it's, I guess it's kind of an opinion question, but 
I don't really know if I believe that there is a human being alive who would be this offended by something they just don't partake in or, 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 or believe in. So are some of these cases, in your opinion as a law professor, are some of these cases really more about just kind of stress testing the law or the Constitution or just trying to explore the space rather than literally someone who says, I, I just cannot get over that I heard a prayer service? Okay, it's about a couple of things. First of all, I think people could work themselves up into a frenzy if they kind of, in an echo chamber, talk about how offensive it is to hear Christian prayer. Somebody probably could get super offended. Uh, But I think I'll be a little even more cynical. In this case, the atheists won one dollar. Their attorneys won thousands and thousands of dollars. So quite frankly, there is the reality that there will be attorneys who will take advantage of these fee-shifting statutes. These statutes are good things. They enable people who don't have resources to bring civil rights suits. But human beings being who we are, there are some attorneys who would be inclined to file a lawsuit, get a dollar for their clients, and tens of thousands of dollars for themselves. It's a good point. It's a good point. And that's why we have you on the show, and we appreciate you. Professor Bill Pyatt, thank you for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. All right, 543 KTSA, ride home time. Um, I, I have a friend, well, I, I guess, I, I, I don't know if we're still friends. He's one of those people that stopped talking to me in the age of Trump. But we were friends for most of our lives, and he is the smartest guy I have ever known. Intellectually, I don't know anyone that holds a candle to him. Uh, well-read uh, you know, encyclopedic memory of many things, U.S. history, world history. But despite being intellectual, he really has some idiotic ideas. There's a quote from George Orwell, some ideas are so stupid only intellectuals believe them. You probably know people like this. They're intelligent, but they're not savvy. They believe in things like socialism or the government should regulate speech or stuff that, you know, the redistribution of wealth that are proven losers that are, that are terrible, awful, no good ideas. But in their intellectual, um, sort of standing, you can't get at them. They can't, they can't be reasoned with. They're smart and they know they are, but they don't realize that they've embraced a dumb idea. That's, by the way, why Marx, Karl Marx, was um, so um, enamored of the idea that they would go after the what he called the intelligentsia. Because he knew that it would be easier to sell his ideas to people like I'm describing than to people that, you know, are out there living life on the street, so to speak. So anyway, that brings me to what I wanted to ask you about. We have a lot of overeducated people in this country. We've spent trillions of dollars on their educations, and we believe that their educated status is of value to all of us. And yet, sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. So Ken Burns, you know who he is? Brilliant documentary filmmaker and 
great storyteller of the American story, has made some incredible works of, of documentary history, and in doing so has brought history to a great many people that are not big book readers or, or maybe students of history, but because these documentary pieces that Ken Burns has made over the years are so successful and so well done, people get it, and, and, and that's a good thing. He's talented. But he, he seems to be kind of an idiot. He went on CNN, and he d- was talking about Ron DeSantis and th- the stuff that he's doing in Florida, and he said this, it feels like a Soviet system, or, you know, the way the Nazis would build a Potemkin village. And he said Tucker Carlson is doing the same thing with the footage from January 6th. Well, first of all, the Potemkin village was not the Nazis. But maybe he misspoke or crossed wires. So he basically was saying, his case was that Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis are imposing white supremacy over all of us. And it's possible when you're in a place like CNN to to become sort of incoherent or inconsistent because it is an echo chamber, and I get that. But this is nonsense. It's nonsense. And it's striking that somebody who has told so much history can't distinguish historical errors. Er- errors. So I'll, I'll, I'll set aside the fact that the Nazis did not do the Potemkin village. The Potemkin village happened under the Russian czars. And there's no connection between the two. The Nazis didn't exist at the time of the Potemkin village or villages. Let's just say this. If you're trying to, um, and, and I believe in diverse viewpoints, and I'm not in favor of limiting the number of things people can learn or be exposed to, but there comes a point when you have to be able to distinguish fantasy from reality. Your ideological opponents, the people that disagree with you, the people that would just do it a different way, they, you know, we're all building a mousetrap, but they would just build it a different way. They're not Nazis or communists or um, terrorists or, or racists. And I guess... Maybe he thinks, well, I won't have to really explain this or connect the dots because I'm Ken Burns. I mean, come on, I'm the history guy. But but he, he sounded like a loon. I mean, there's no connection between Tucker Carlson, Ron DeSantis, the Nazis, and Jim Crow. And it's possible to be a genius in terms of book knowledge, and be an idiot in terms of the real world. And I think maybe he is. Maybe he's a guy that plays a historian rather than is one. By the way, um, about critical race theory, which seems to have hung everybody up, they often say that critical race theory is only taught in colleges. That's half true. It was taught in colleges. But it was taught in colleges specifically schools of education, so that it could be taught in the classrooms 
that your sons, your daughters go to. Now, I would be fine with teaching it in the classroom of a college, because in a college you study theory, and critical race theory could be one of many ways you show how or or prisms through which history could be viewed. You want to do that in a college, that's fine. That's fine. Because, again, in college you're supposed to be able to consider concepts and viewpoints. You know, I... I had college classes where they taught us about communism. They weren't, they weren't making us communists, but they were teaching us about it so we would understand it. It's very different when you're putting it in the classroom with little kids. That's what a DeSantis is taking on. And as far as Tucker Carlson, the difference between people in political power hiding facts or cherry-picking them and a person on a television show cherry-picking them is such a huge difference, it's almost impossible to believe that someone would not understand that difference. So is Ken Burns really incapable of understanding it, or is he just pretending that he doesn't understand it? You tell me. Today is International Women's Day. I did not know that when I got up this morning. Uh, but uh, because I was challenged, I sat down, and on the off the top of my head, I made me a little list. And now I want to ask you, And here's the question I worked off of. Who's the greatest woman in American history? Who's the greatest woman in American history? If you have more than one, you can name more than one. So I'm not asking you. I I know there are guys that are going to say, my wife is the greatest woman. No, that's not what I'm asking. I'm not here to help you with your marriage. I'm not here to help you get out of trouble because you forgot your anniversary. or something. I know how it works. I know. I know. We're not doing that. Greatest woman in American history. Past or present, living or dead. Who comes to don't don't look it up, okay? Because I didn't I didn't go to Google. I didn't I just I sat down and I thought, okay, who comes to mind? Who comes to your mind? 210-599-5555. Now I'll give you an example. When I was uh, really young, this was 1976, um, I can pinpoint exactly when I got interested in politics, exactly when I became fascinated with politics. And it was the summer of 1976, and the two political parties were holding their conventions, their national conventions, to nominate president. The 76 was the year that the Jerry Ford ran as the Republican, and Jimmy Carter ran as the Democrat, and of course Carter won. And the Republican convention featured Ronald Reagan giving this incredible off-the-cuff concession speech. He had lost the nomination to Jerry Ford, and it was so incredible that people at the convention said to one another, "We may have nominated the wrong guy." And then on the dem- and, and the, the conventions were, I think, about three weeks apart. And I'm listening to these on the radio as a little kid. And then the Democratic convention, the, the keynote speaker was a Texas congresswoman named Barbara Jordan. Take a listen to this, cut number six. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. It was 144 years ago 
that members of the Democratic Party first met in convention to select a presidential candidate. Since that time, Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft a party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. <laughs> this was a this was a completely spellbinding when, um, moment in American politics, and uh, Barbara Jordan made her name, made her mark, uh, not only as a member of Congress and a civil rights leader and a and a lawyer and just a but what a what a what a speaker. Um, Barbara Jordan, one of the greatest living Americans. Well, she's not alive anymore. One, one of the greatest American women uh, ever, I would say. Um, another name that came to my mind very, very quickly uh, when I thought about this today was Condoleezza Rice, um, who most people remember as you know Secretary of State under President Bush, um, but so many other talents. Uh, founding member of the College Football Playoff Selection Board, a very talented classical pianist, author, um, executive, uh, educator. Um, and, and, and like Barbara Jordan, Condoleezza Rice never ran for president or served as president, but wound up being as highly regarded and respected as as usually people are when they become president you know it's it's easy to if you're if you're the president it's easy to be on those most admired lists it's different when you're not when you haven't been and and those are two women that have been rightfully uh, admired who would you say was the greatest woman in american history 210-599-5555 come on if you have a favorite cereal got to have a favorite you can do it I thought of Ayn Rand, uh, because again, for me personally, as a young person reading the, uh, you know, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, probably that shaped my thinking about politics as much as anything. You know, especially really what, what Ayn Rand wrote about was politics and the individual. And you don't have to agree or completely buy into her to appreciate the, the notion of being true to oneself or of um, saying I I am going to own what I do, what I say, what I create. We need that more than ever right now. I would say, I, I, you know, people talk a lot about Orwell and if Orwell was alive and these are or- Orwellian times, these are Anne Randian times too. They really are. And if you haven't seen it, uh, the, the movie version of The Fountainhead is a great representation of the book. Gary Cooper and Patricia Neal, or you can, um, there's, there's some recent, um, film adaptations of Atlas Shrugged that came out within the last 10 or 15 years that are really, really good. So, Ann Rand would be on my list for sure. Or what I might call, perhaps I could call this my, my binder full of women. Thank you. And, uh, important topic. 
and one which I learned a great deal about, uh, particularly as I was serving as governor of my state, because I had the, the chance to pull together a cabinet, and uh, all the applicants seemed to be men. And I, and I went to my staff, and I said, how come all the people for these jobs are, are all men? They said, well, these are the people that have the qualifications. And I said, well, gosh, can't we, can't we find some, some women that are also qualified? And, uh, and so we, we took a concerted effort to go out and find women who had backgrounds that could be qualified to become members of our cabinet. Yeah. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And yeah. they brought us whole binders full of, uh, of women. Binders full of women. They brought him binders full of women. By the way, he got raked over the coals for that. That was not a bad thing. Uh, isn't that what we now lovingly refer to as diversity, right? Yeah. Oh, he was such a terrible person for binders full of women. Oh, my gosh. All right, so who would you put in your binder full of women? 210-599-5555. And then I thought of um, another name that I thought of because one of my favorite historical figures um, is Dorothy Dix. And I have to throw her in because she's from Boston. And Dorothy Dix lived during the 19th century. And um, she was a nurse and did a lot to modernize nursing uh, during the Civil War, probably saved a lot of lives. And she got very involved in the reform of prisons and insane asylums. Now, in the 19th century, prisons and insane asylums were horrific places. Horrific. Words can't be found. In fact, at the time of Dorothy Dix, a husband could put his wife in an insane asylum if she spoke, if she talked back to him or if she defied him. He could have her committed because he was her husband. And Dorothy Dix helped end that, which I think is a good thing. She was not right about everything. She had some racist ideas. She was against the abolition of slavery. But, but again, in the stuff she worked on, she worked tirelessly and, and, and courageously. I think of Harriet Tubman, uh, one of the conductors of the Underground Railroad. Um, I think of Louisa May Alcott, who was a very young girl, had to work to feed her family, and yet while she was doing that, barely getting enough to eat, she wrote the famous Little Women, one of the most famous American books of all time. So who would be in your binder full of women? 210 599 Fifty-five, fifty-five, and again, what comes off the top of your head? Don't Google it. Don't look it up. Just great American woman of history. John is on the radio. Hi, John. Yeah, hi. I've got a current name for you. How yeah. about Eileen Collins, oh, who yeah. was the first woman to pilot the space shuttle and also the first woman to command the space mm -hmm. shuttle, including four flights. I believe she was the commander after the Columbia disaster. Had a chance to meet her a couple of weeks ago. She was doing a book signing at the Parman Library, and she was just a, a delight to hear. She gave a wonderful presentation. And uh, since I'm a retired preacher, I had to ask her about her faith, you know, going up into space, mm -hmm. did that mm -hmm. strengthen it or, 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 or what? And, and she was very kind. She said in her case, she looked at the stars. She looked back at Earth. And it strengthened her face. She realized how small she was and how big God must be. And mm. I just thought, well, there's a there's a genuine American hero. So Eileen Collins, I'll put that name. I up. love that, boy. I love that is a great choice, John. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's a cool story too. I'm glad you told that. Um, Eileen Collins, the astronaut, retired astronaut. All right, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. 
Uh, listener challenged me to come up with some names. I came up with eight off the top of my head, uh, like Condoleezza Rice, um, Harriet Tubman, Louisa May Alcott, uh, Dorothy Dix, Anne Rand, uh, Barbara Jordan. You know, Barbara Jordan really, I'm, I'm not making that up. I mean, I, that speech that she gave and then the Ronald Reagan speech on the Republican side that year, that from that point on, the summer of 76, uh, even though I was just a young kid, I was, I was, uh, 10. Um, I never looked back. I was fascinated with politics and news and current events. I've always been grateful to Barbara Jordan and Ronald Reagan, uh, for that. You're probably listening to this going, man, I wish they hadn't, <laughs> wish that kid hadn't heard them because we can't shut them up now. Uh, all right. Your turn. 210-599-5555. And David is on KTSA. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going? I'd like to give honorable mention and probably the GOAT of all. I mean, maybe not the best, but uh, I have to give honorable mention to Rosa Parks because I am not, I have the breast to where I'm not giving up the seat after a hard day's work. I'm not doing it. I yeah. just can't. I know it's against the law. I am yeah. not doing it. I, yeah. I just think that's, that it might have been a little bit before my time, right? but I think she deserves honorable mention. She's, Absolutely. I, I know it's against the law. But I am yeah. overworked. Like Al Green said, it's all in a day's work. Yep. I am not giving up my seat. I'm just not doing it. And with great I'm dignity. She did it with great dignity. And, and yeah, very, very just a, a great that example. Was very influential to me. Yeah. Uh, that gave me goosebumps. By just not against the law and not giving mm-hmm. up my seat after mm-hmm. a hard day's work. No, I'm not doing it. Yeah. That's one of those stories, too, if you think about it. It's not like there's any video of it or you, you, you can't pull it up on YouTube and watch her do it. Nope. But the, the, the story is so powerful that just people repeating it has kept it alive for what? It's been almost 70 years since she did that. So great example, David. Good one. Thank you, sir. Uh, 210-599-5555. All right. Rosa Parks, definitely. Uh, who comes to mind? Give me a name that immediately comes to mind. Greatest women in American history. And Laura is on KTSA. Laura, good evening. Hi. Who, who did you come up with? Day. Where did your name go to? Helen Keller. Helen Keller. What made you think of her? Well, I work in um, the field with uh, kids with autism and persons with intellectual disabilities, and mm-hmm. she inspired me. And mm-hmm. every day that I have difficulty trying to work with a child to teach them how to speak, she inspires me not to give up. Yeah, the, 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 she is a great uh, example of overcoming not just one, but multiple challenges. I mean, she had a lot to overcome. She had a hard life starting out. I, I think that's a great... And when you said autism, you reminded me of another name, and I wish I had thought of this name, uh, Temple Grandin. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. you just an incredible woman who uh stood for so many different causes i mean she she was a pioneer on autism she was a pioneer on the humane treatment of animals i mean just so many different things and had and again had to overcome her challenges to do that and wrote some incredible uh, have you ever read any of her books her books are amazing um no i have not um I read too much in college, so I kind of gave that up for a little while. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. College can do that. But, yeah, Helen Keller is a great choice. Thank you, Laura. appreciate that. I, When I was growing up, um, 
uh, in in the suburb of Boston, the next town over was the home of the uh, school that was named for Helen Keller and, and where she had uh, done her work. And you would see students, they would be taking students out uh, who were learning things like walking across a busy, you know, city street and, and a different thing, negotiating life uh, under the, the, the training that she pioneered along with others. So I, I, on a constant basis, you would be reminded just sitting at a, at a traffic light and, and you'd watch a group of, of these students, you'd be reminded of, of how important it is for somebody to go first, right? For somebody to do it first or show that it can be done. 210-599-5555. And I, I guess um, another name I would throw out, it's not, again, for me, I, I, I want to be clear, I didn't try to make a definitive list or say these are the most obvious. These were just names that kind of popped into my head. But I, I thought of a woman named Mary McLeod Bethune, and I, I wish everybody knew who she was. She should be much, much more prominent. In fact, people should know Mary McLeod Bethune as well and widely as they know the name Rosa Parks or or uh, or some of these others. Um, and there's a book called The Black Cabinet uh, that really tells her story. But she was a she was a woman that um, founded one of the first historically black colleges and universities in the country. It's called Bethune-Cookman University. She built it out of a girls' school. But she um, really came to fame by being sort of the unofficial advisor on race to FDR. There was this thing in the early part of the 20th century called the Black Cabinet. And it was, it was black American businessmen, uh, political leaders, educators, people, different walks of life, but, and, and almost all men who, um, would meet and would try to, as best they could, get word to or get guidance to or advice to the presidents and the congresses of the time. And we're talking now about like, you know, William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and up through Woodrow Wilson and, and, and Herbert Hoover and, and of course FDR. And, and they, they called themselves the Black Cabinet. They weren't an official government entity, although some of them did have government jobs. Some of them did work in the federal bureaucracy and they did meet in Washington, D.C. They would meet, in fact, at a, at a, a well-known restaurant that, that, um, was integrated and, and allowed them to come in and sit. So Mary McLeod Bethune became the leader of the Black Cabinet in the 1930s. And she was somebody that had Franklin Roosevelt's ear. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat it. They were at loggerheads most of the time. He didn't take her advice. He didn't listen to her. And the reason he didn't listen to her is because the Democratic Party of his time was centered in the South. And he couldn't do the things that Mary McLeod Bethune wanted him to do and told him he needed to do because he was afraid of offending all the black Demo- uh, excuse me all of the uh, white democratic congressmen and senators but she persisted and the story of the black cabinet is an incredible book about how politics works and um sort of what it took to to have a voice i mean today 
as much as people can complain, uh, we've had an African-American president, we have an African-American vice president, we've had people at every level of all three branches of government. I'm impressed by the people who lived in a time when none of that had happened yet. None of that seemed possible. But they still said, look, we're going to be heard. We're going to have a voice. And so, yeah, Mary McLeod Bethune, if you can, if you can find out anything about her, uh, or read the book is, it's an incredible story and really inspi- inspiring. And, um, I was kind of trying to come up with names that wouldn't be the most obvious names, although that's fine too. But who would you name as, as, as somebody who was a great woman in American history, past or present? San Antonio's News Talk Station. We're live. This show is live Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 in the afternoon. It's also available as a podcast. You can get it at KTSA.com or anywhere where you like to get podcasts. Look for the Jack Riccardi Show, and that way you can listen when it's easier or better for you. Kind of get into this discussion of um, International Women's Day, and um, (laughs) I had a lady say to me, you know, you talked about cereal yesterday should be some time on the show for women i I agree that's that's fair good point um so i started thinking who were the greatest women in american history i mean that's one way to look at it i know we could go global but i'm just thinking right now american history uh 210-599-5555 ann is on the radio and good evening welcome to the show Thank you. My choice would be Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes, yes. You know what I love about Harriet Beecher Stowe is that book was one of the first true national bestsellers. We think about that now. We say national bestsellers. That was wasn't really a thing uh, in in the middle of the nineteenth century because there wasn't the kind of publishing and book distribution there is now. And people were reading that book in huge numbers. And Abraham Lincoln was one of the people who was so moved by that book that he invited Harriet Beecher Stowe to the White House to enlighten him about the the, the real lives of slaves. Yeah, it's a great story, great choice. Uh, and thank you for the call. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right on the money. Uh, she is on my list, by the way. My my binder full of women. I have Harriet Beecher Stowe on there too. Um, who have we not mentioned? I've mentioned Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, Louisa May Alcott, Harriet Beecher Stowe. I, I think we mentioned Harriet Tubman. Uh, if I didn't, obviously one of the great conductors of the Underground Railroad, a, a young woman who escaped slavery and then helped others uh, do that. W- one of the things that attracted me to the the women I put on my list was that with Maybe the exception of, I don't know, maybe, maybe Condoleezza Rice because she's so recent. All of these other women I listed are women that did their thing during a period of time when it wasn't thought that women could do those things or go in those places or say that stuff or whatever it might be. I think that's kind of cool. As the father of a, I, I don't, I don't bill myself as some kind of great feminist, but I mean, I am the father of a daughter. 
I want her to bull her way into the things she wants. I want her to go walk through doors and go places that she's been told she can't or, or, you know, what have you. I, I, I don't, I don't know of anybody that has daughters who doesn't, wouldn't want for them that kind of confidence. You know what I mean? Just be confident. Don't let anybody tell you your place, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, so that, that was kind of the common denominator. Uh, f- for each of these. And, um, like I said, the one that I encountered probably the earliest was Barbara Jordan. I, I, I was, I remember it was radio because the political conventions in those days were covered, uh, live and continuously on not only a number of television stations, there was no cable, but a number of radio stations. And I remember I was in Boston. I was growing up in Boston. It was the CBS station, WEEI, in Boston. And they were carrying the conventions. And I was listening to them. It was summertime. I was out of school. I didn't have a bedtime. And um, I don't know. I just got fascinated. And I remember the Reagan speech vividly. And I remember Barbara Jordan. Uh, Let me play another clip from that. Cut number five, Don. in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. A spirit of harmony will survive in America only if each of us remembers that we share a common destiny. If each of us remembers when self-interest and bitterness seem to prevail, that we share a common destiny. And I ask you that as you listen to these words of Abraham Lincoln, relate them to the concept of a national community as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This, this expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is no democracy. Thank you. Not only, oh, wow. Not not only not only is it a great is it a great address in and of itself, but I, I have to say, and I don't mean to sound like one of those uh, old dudes that says oh, everything used to be better than it is now, because I know you get tired of hearing that. But not everything was better than it is now, to be fair. But man, we don't. Our politicians don't talk to us at that level 
anymore. They don't use vocabulary like that, diction like that, pacing like that. You, you, if you, if you really listen to politicians today, 99% of them, it's like they're talking to very, very stupid children. Very ill-behaved, stupid children. Not your children, other people's children. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's very dumbed down. It's very lowest common denominator, uh, and, uh, kind of hep and not, not lofty, not in, not making you want to reach higher. Um, and I, 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 I'm not just saying her, but I mean, you listen to, and I think we've done this before. When you go back in the archives and you pull up, you know, a Reagan, a Kennedy, a Truman, what have you. Um, I mean, it, it, it's the American people. It's our country, but it's like a, an entirely different level of education, awareness, vocabulary. And isn't it interesting that when Barbara Jordan's giving that speech, that speech is 1976, or if you're pulling up a, a Kennedy speech, you're talking about a far smaller percentage of Americans who've been to college, far smaller. And yet, oddly enough, seemingly better educated and better vocabulary and able to follow a long, more complicated sentence. I wonder how that happened. 210-599-5555. All right. Um, we asked you on the JR poll, do you approve or disapprove of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy these days? I have to tell you, I, I think if we had asked this question before he became Speaker, I don't think he would have done too well with our audience. Tonight in the JR poll, 77% say they approve of him. And I'll put myself down for that right now. 23% disapprove. Tomorrow, a new question. We get started at 4 or find it anytime at KTSA.com. All right, International Women's Day. Greatest uh, women in American history. Charlie, you got a name for us? Yeah, I have a group of women. I've just the women who stepped up during World War II and built all the helped build all the planes mm. and tanks. Remember the road distributors? Yeah. Without them, yeah. we may not be in a country we are in today. Great point. Flew, the, they they built them. Some of them they flew planes. They they transported they planes, planes they to built the ammo. Yeah. I mean, it was a team effort, and it wasn't any one particular room, but a group of women. Without them, yeah. we may not be in the country we are today. I love that. That's a great. That's a great choice. Different, kind of a different direction, but a great one, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, with the women who entered the workplace in World War II, uh, and you know, they ranged. I'm sure from women who have were already working and and uh, and or wanted to do the work, but I'm sure there were also a lot of women that went into those factories and shops and workplaces because they felt they needed to. Uh, and it, as Charlie says, we did need them to. But a lot of people think that Rosie the Riveter, who was not a, a, a real person, but was a character created for uh, posters and recruiting and so forth, um, a lot of people think Norman Rockwell painted her. And I remember looking this up a while back. He did paint a version of Rosie the Riveter for a Saturday Evening Post uh, magazine cover. But the original Rosie the Riveter was actually part of a Westinghouse uh, advertising campaign created by an artist in Pittsburgh named Howard Miller. And, uh, that's the, when you see that poster, which is still on t shirts and all over the place, and it's her with her, your bicep, and it says, We can do it. That's, 
Uh, that's uh, that's a guy named Howard Miller. So I, I do think that um, as much as people talk about glass ceilings and and firsts and things like that today, and I'm probably going to make some people mad saying this, but this is what I think. I, I realize there are still obstacles for women. I realize there are still firsts that have not yet been achieved, so forth and so on. But th- there is a big difference between, say, a workplace or a college or just society back then and now. And here is the difference, okay? Here is the difference. Today, if a woman is openly, overtly discriminated against, she can and probably will go to court. There is a law being violated, okay? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but you got the law on your side. You go back 75, 100 years ago or more, there's there's no law. There's no judge. There's no court. There's no sympathetic media coverage. There's no uh, TV show called The View to take up your case. There's none of that. So those women were something else in that era. To, to achieve or pioneer in that era, I'm sorry, I don't mean to take away from you now, ladies, but they did not have any safety net, anything backing them up back in the day. They, they, had, they had belief in themselves. They had belief in God. They had belief in their country, things like that. We will get back at it live again tomorrow here at 4 or find our show as an on-demand podcast, The Jack Riccardi Show, wherever you like to get podcasts or at KTSA.com.